So, this morning, uh, actually this last week, I've been working through uh, Luke's Gospel as we continue to work through that series, trying to see who, uh, who Jesus is, as Luke is trying to tell us, trying to impress upon us. And this last week, I've been thinking some about, uh, as I've been studying, is kind of wondering what to say, actually. Not in terms of what Luke is trying to tell us, but what do we need to hear? What's important for us? Some of you, you might be hearing this story for the first time of Jesus' baptism, what happened, how it went down, what God was saying. Some of you have heard this story a few times, maybe a few dozen times, maybe dozens of dozens of times. How do we hear this story uh, to get the most out of it, to hear what Luke is trying to tell us, both those who maybe this is your first time and those who've heard it a lot? Now, uh, some of you are wondering, you know, what is Luke trying to show us? What does he want us to realize about Jesus? I've been thinking some about this, and so I want to just get into the Word of God, and let's start digging into it and see uh, what there is for us here. All right? So, starts here. The story begins, and if you want to look in your, uh, your bulletins there, your sermon guides, there's the scriptures right there if you want to take a look at it. He said, uh, or if you want to, open your Bible. It's Luke chapter 3, verse 21, if you want to open your Bibles there. So, uh, Luke tells us that when all the people were being baptized, and he means all the people around the Jordan River who had, been come, who had come to be baptized by John, uh, Jesus was baptized too. Now, I want to make an important point here because John was preaching a baptism of repentance from sin. And some people have asked, you know, what's Jesus doing here? Why is he needing repentance of sin? Why is he being baptized? It's a good question. And actually, as you read the Gospels, they're all um, silent. They actually don't say anything where Jesus repented. And that's important for us because Jesus, for his sacrifice uh, on the cross, eventually as we get through the rest of Luke, many of us have heard the story of how God died on the cross for us. Uh, For him to be effective at that, he had to be without sin. And so Jesus is here doing something. He's getting baptized and something is happening here, but it's not necessarily the baptism of repentance that John was talking about. I just want to make that clear. So some of you might be wondering what's happening. Why is this Jesus being baptized? But rather, because he is sinless, he has no need of repentance, and not only that, um, he's here doing something bigger, something even more. So listen to this. So it actually <clears throat> says this. Luke says, And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit depend, or descended on him, in bodily form like a dove. Now, I just kind of want to break this down for us so we can get all the bits, everything out of this. The first part here is as he was praying. Now, for Luke, uh, Luke is careful to mention this in a few different places uh, in Jesus' ministry that amazing things happened while he was praying. One of them was the transfiguration, which comes a little bit later in the gospel when Jesus is up on a mountain with three of his disciples and his face begins to glow like the sun and God speaks over him again. And so at this amazing moment, Jesus is praying before that. Not only that, but when he um, chooses his disciples, Jesus is praying. When he, before he goes to the cross, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, many of us have, have heard that story, that before he went to the cross, Jesus was praying um, that God would help him. So, not only is um, it's important for us to see, but it shows Jesus' devotion and how close he is to God the Father. Okay, so he was praying, and the heavens, I'm sorry, and heaven was opened. Now, just think about that for a moment, because <laughs> we don't see that very often. I have yet to see it entirely. 
I have yet to see it where the heavens were open. I mean, I've seen beautiful skylines, beautiful places, but not the heavens open. So the fact that the heavens have opened is something big. God is doing something special here. But not only that, but this is also actually an answer to prayer. You see, in Isaiah 64, uh, one of the prophets, uh, the people were actually crying out. They were crying out to God because they were oppressed. The things were really difficult for them. Uh, many of their people had been taken into Babylon, into a different country, into exile. And they were crying out, God help us. And they were saying, Lord, if you would open the heavens. Actually, the, the word is rend. The old word is rend. It means like to tear apart. If you tear open the heavens, God, and come down. The people were praying because they needed deliverance. They were especially, they were praying this in light of oppression and asking God to come and rescue them. So, we see something magnificent, something big happening here. But it's also a signal that God is doing something here. He pulls back the curtain. This veil between us and heaven, the things that we hear about we can't see easily, God pulls back the curtain and he steps into our reality. I was thinking about this. There's one other place. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the scriptures, at the end of the Bible, there's this book called Revelation. And that whole book is actually where the door is open and, he, and John, one of Jesus' disciples, gets a glimpse of heaven and what's really happening behind the scenes. And so this is an amazing idea of what happens when God opens the heavens. Okay, so, opens the heavens and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, there's a couple things happening here. A couple things all at once. One of them is, first of all, this is God confirming Jesus. God is putting his spirit on him, confirming who he, is, who he is, that God is at work here. That this is not just your ordinary baptism. God is doing something amazing. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit now comes and rests on Jesus, adding power to him, because Jesus is already Jesus, right? He's already God, the Son. But the Spirit comes on him and gives him additional power. Shows who he is, empowers him for ministry of healing and preaching and teaching. But I was thinking about this some actually this week, and I was reading a commentary by um, a New Testament scholar named Dale Bruner, um, and he was, made this great point. He made this point about how God works. He says, not only does the Spirit add power to Jesus, but we get this example of how. That God's Spirit moves downward and doveward, he said. And he was trying to get an example, trying to get at it as how God does things. God comes down in Jesus. God came down for us. God humbles himself. And the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Not like a lion in this case. Not like a terrible rhinoceros or something big and menacing. But like a dove. And lands on Jesus. But this is how God works. Downward and doveward. It's interesting when you compare that to uh, the next few, or the few verses ahead where Jesus is tempted. Satan doesn't tempt him with downward and doveward. Satan tempts him with upward, with kingdoms and power and aggression. This is what, tempted, this is what Satan tempts with, is, is upward and aggression versus God who blesses with downward and doveward. And so we see in this moment not only that God is behind Jesus, but also we see how God works the way that he does it. But perhaps most importantly, most importantly out of all of this, is that this, this dove coming on Jesus signals that Jesus is a servant of the Lord. I shouldn't say that. He's not a servant. He is the servant of the Lord. Now, the servant of the Lord, if you haven't read through Isaiah, which who here has read through Isaiah recently, 
the servant of the Lord was someone specific in Isaiah's prophecy, speaking of someone who would come, who would save God's people, not through military might, but through his faithfulness. He would rescue God's people. And not only that, but the Spirit of God would rest on him. That was a key uh, part or the key facet of who this servant would be. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and rests on Jesus, man, if we had been just been reading Isaiah, we would have been thinking to ourselves, what? Like this? This sounds a lot like God's servant. This sounds like the servant of the Lord that Isaiah spoke about 800 years before Jesus. And so we see this happening here. In a couple, actually next, a couple of weeks, we'll be continuing to work through Luke. Jesus says this about himself. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus is saying that the Spirit is upon him, signaling to us that he is the Savior, but also what kind of Savior he is. That he is a Savior from the servant of the Lord. He's going to be doing it God's way. Essentially, it's God saying that Jesus is started in this mission. The Spirit coming on Jesus here, he's saying everything is beginning. Everything is starting to happen here. No longer, are we, we've kind of moved out of, in Luke's gospel, we've moved out of the stories of what Jesus was like as a boy and how he was born and all that led into that. We're moving into the stories now of his ministry, of his mission. Not only that, we'll see that this mission of Jesus is spirit-led, that he is the servant He's the kind of king that we don't expect, a servant king, not a triumphant, well, not like an aggressive military king, but a servant king, the one who comes to save his people, not with big armies, but with his faithfulness. Now, I want to take a moment here, before we go further, as we start talking about baptism, that if any of you have questions about baptism, maybe you haven't been baptized yet and you would like to find out more about it because you're ready to take that next step to follow Jesus. Talk with me after the service today or call me. I would love to talk with you about baptism and what it means for us as followers of Jesus. Okay, so let's keep going. So Luke is setting the stage for I think this key part of this whole story. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, let that just sink in for a moment. You have God actually speaking from heaven here in an audible voice that the people around him could hear. People around Jesus who are gathered there, they hear God speaking. Can you imagine being there? The warmth and the sand and the Jordan River flowing by. Jesus baptized, coming up out of the water the heavens open like nothing you've ever seen before. The Spirit descends and then you hear God's voice. And you know, I've always thought about this ever since I've heard this story uh, that it's probably not so much the voice that you hear with your ears but actually the voice that you feel in your chest as it reverberates through you. Him saying, you are my son. You are my beloved son and I am so pleased with you. You can hear God's deep love for Jesus. You can hear what's happening. And it's interesting as we think about our own desire for fathers. And now, I want to be careful here because I know uh, some of you had great fathers. Some of us had okay fathers. Some of us had not so great fathers. 
But think about this, what God, what Yahweh, the Lord of all creation, speaks over Jesus right here. First, he talks about his identity, you are. How much that we seek identity from our fathers. And here, God is saying, you are Jesus. This is who you are. And then he talks about belonging. He says to Jesus, you are my son. You belong to me. God saying that Jesus is his father. He has identity with Yahweh, the Lord of everything. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, you are my son and uh, you're a failure. He says, you are my son whom I love. Now the love here, I mean, we in English, love means so many different things. But actually, the Greek behind this is agape, which means um, whom I love unconditionally. Regardless of how badly you mess up, I love you unconditionally. And this last part, he says, with you I am so pleased. Now, this is one, I don't know, like, guys, if you can relate to this, but, you know, my dad, um, he was a good guy, but hardly, I can't really think of any time him saying, uh, except for when I played sports, then he, did, was, he was proud of that, but any time others when he said, man, I'm so proud of you. This is essentially what God is saying here. Jesus, I am so pleased in you. That God is saying how deeply he loves him, but he accepts him and even delights in him. Now, again, I'm not sure what your dad is like, but think about what this shows us who God is like. What our Father in heaven is like. And what his relationship is with Jesus. So, when we are faithfully following Jesus, when we've trusted our lives to him, I think actually these words can apply to us as well. Think about this for a moment. Listen to these words said differently. That God's speaking these words to you, our Father in heaven saying, you are my child whom I love. In you I am so pleased. Despite the times that you mess up, I love you unconditionally. Despite the things that you get wrong, I'm still pleased in you, not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Let those words sink into your life. Think about that for a moment. These are the sort of words that change your life. These are the sort of words that undo all the times when people, even people we love, even people we look up to, say, you know what, you just don't cut it. Or you're not good enough. Or I wish you were smarter. Or I wish you were braver. I wish you were better. All that gets undone or put in its right place when we hear God in heaven saying, you are my child whom I love. And you are, I'm so pleased. But here's the thing. Not only does God say these amazing things to Jesus, at the very same time, he's actually quoting scripture. Now this is one of the parts where those of you who, uh, maybe this is the first time you've heard this story, this is good. This is like a bonus for you. Not only do you get to hear what God is saying about Jesus, and maybe that's amazing to you, but now you get to see some of the deeper layers of what's happening. For those of you who've heard this story a few times, some of this might be new. Some of it you might have already heard. But I want to encourage us to listen to these words again. So actually, when he says here, you are my son, it's actually a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. At verse 2, verse 7, uh, God is speaking to a new king. He says, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Psalm 2, 7. 
Now, it's pretty cool in of itself, God quoting the Psalms um, and quoting Scripture, but actually, Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm, a song that the people of God would sing when a new king was crowned, when a new king became king. And truly, Jesus is this new king over Israel. That's what's happening here. Jesus is king. Not only that, but as Luke has been trying repeatedly to help us see, Jesus isn't just some king. He comes from the line of David. For those of you who haven't heard of David, he's one of the greatest, actually probably he is the greatest king of Israel, of their history. And one of the promises God gave to David, this great king, thousands of years before, actually a thousand plus years before Jesus, he said, you will have a descendant who will reign forever. And Luke is trying to help us see that Jesus is that king from the house of David. Okay, so he's wrapping up all this stuff in Psalm 2, but listen to um, what it says about this king and what he will be like. I think actually maybe the best way to hear is just to hear the psalm. So just listen to these words. So this is Psalm 2. It says, so they would read this when a new king became king. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, his chosen one, his Christ. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their chains. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king. On Zion, my holy hill, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And you will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, you other kings of the world, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And you uh, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be, be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Now this is the last line of the psalm. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him, this king. Jesus is this king who reigns right now. I know that as you read scripture, there's some that say, you know, Satan rules right now. As you read the New Testament, you realize that Jesus rules right now. What do we make of this? Now, it's true, there are principalities and powers. There is Satan and systems of evil that are still at work and they still hold lots of sway, but that's because they refuse to surrender. Jesus is the Lord. He reigns right now and he is coming again to bring his kingdom more fully. But blessed are those who take refuge in him right now. Blessed are those who trust their lives to him. He is our salvation but I'm getting ahead of myself here. Listen to this. Because God doesn't stop there. When he says, you are my son, he quotes Psalm 2, but then he says, when he says, whom I love, with you I am well pleased, he's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, from Isaiah 42. So, um, you might be asking, like, why does he skip around like this? Why does he quote part from Psalms? Why does he quote part from Isaiah? Listen to this bit here. Listen to this first part of Isaiah 42. All right? Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. 
That's the quote right there. I will put my spirit on him. Jesus. Any connections here? I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord God says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you. He's talking to his servant now, the servant of the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people, a new covenant for the people, and a light to the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, both literally and spiritually, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So not only does Jesus fulfill these words of the prophet Isaiah from 800 years before him, but actually Yahweh is quoting this scripture and saying these things about Jesus. He's implying that Jesus is more than just some great teacher, that he is actually the servant of the Lord, this special person that Isaiah prophesied, that Isaiah spoke about 800 years before. This servant who would come and save God's people, not by his big army or his military power, but through his faithfulness. Jesus is going to accomplish all of this by his faithfulness. Listen to this part again. In verse 3 it says, In his faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. It's the opening for all people, beyond even Israel, beyond the Jewish people, to all people of the world, including us who sit in this room right now. God is including us in this to open the eyes of the blind. Literally, those who were blind, Jesus healed them and gave them sight. But also, Isaiah, in his prophecy, talks a lot about people who were blind. He meant spiritually blind, who failed to see God and what God was doing. Jesus is coming to give them sight again, that they would see who God is and faithfully follow him, to set captives free. Now, Throughout uh, the first part of Luke's gospel, he has been subtly weaving in this story of the Exodus. And for those of you who haven't heard that story, it's how God brought his people out of Egypt. And maybe some of you, a famous uh, movie a few, well, a couple decades ago now, was the Ten Commandments. It's that story of how God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. And I think God, and actually in, in Luke's gospel, he is saying that God is doing a new Exodus saving people not from slavery uh, to some other country, but slavery to sin. So he set them free from the shame of sin. So all these things are getting wrapped up into these short, this one little sentence from God. God quoting scripture and drawing all this together at Jesus. Now, for those of you who have heard this for the, or hearing this for the first time, maybe you're swimming. Maybe you're thinking like, whoa, I cannot believe that all this is present here. But for those of you who've heard this a few times, maybe a few dozen times, I'm hoping that this is adding some layer and some depth to this story for you, that you are realizing in new and fresh ways who Jesus is by what God says here. Now, essentially God has said that Jesus is king, that he is this servant king. Now that's a special kind of king because we don't have many servant kings in the world today. We have all sorts of people who claim power, who have risen to power, and they are not servant kings. 
I mean, think about the, the leaders of the world. Think about leaders for Canada, the U.S., China, Russia. Do any of them seem like servant kings? No, Jesus is a special kind of king. In his reign, he will save people. Not just the nation of Israel, but all who follow him. And he will save us not just with a better government, but with who he is, with faithfulness, with his faithfulness to God, with his sacrifice for us. He will save us from our sin. He will save us from death. He will save us from the evil one. He will give us new life that is more full right now and goes on forever. God has come through his son to give us new life. That's not just good because we start following him now, but also goes on forever. So God is saying all this amazing moment, this baptism of Jesus, the heavens have opened, God has spoken. He has said, you are my son whom I love and you I'm so pleased. This amazing moment. And then the next part of Luke's gospel, genealogy. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. This is the beginning. And he was the son, so it was thought. And again, this is showing us who his real father is, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat. Okay, I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just joking. But this huge thing, what is Luke doing here? Like this amazing moment, the birth stories, everything's leading up to this point, and boom, genealogy. The 50, I think it's 51 names of people. And actually, as reading on this week, most of these names nobody has ever heard of. Like you look through the Old Testament, through scriptures, and there's no names of these people until you get to about uh, David, and actually a little bit before David, and then it, then it starts to get into some of the, the genealogy from the Old Testament. So what is Luke doing here? Matthew, in his genealogy, puts it at the beginning. Right at the beginning. I think it's like a few verses into Matthew when he gets this genealogy. Now, I've really debated on how much of this to, to talk about because one... If you read Matthew's genealogy and you read Luke's, you might be thinking, like, what in the world? They are very different. Actually, I think after Joseph, Matthew goes one direction and Luke goes another. Like, that's one generation. And if you're really interested, if that really sticks with you, if you're really like, man, I don't understand and it, it makes it hard for me to trust the scriptures, come talk with me. Essentially, I think the best, or the best answer I've heard is that um, based on ancient Near Eastern um, family rites, that Luke is following one particular uh, vein and Matthew is following another. If you have more questions about that, if that bothers you, come talk with me. Uh, there's a lot of complicated things here uh, that are very different than our culture, and so I'd love to explain them to you or, or work on it together, I should say. So, but I think the main point that Luke is trying to get us to see here is actually more clear. Because... At Jesus' baptism, Jesus talked about as the Son of God. You are my Son. And in the next, uh, the next story after this is Jesus tempted in the desert, where he again affirms that he is the Son of God. So I think what actually what Luke wants us to see is just whose boy Jesus really is. All right? So uh, the first thing here, and actually if you want to look at this, I've got a few names that are, that are highlighted here in your, in your sermon guides. There's a few names that are underlined. I kind of went right to the key parts for you, okay? The first one, he is the son of David. This is something that Luke has been trying to explain for the whole gospel. 
So far, the first three chapters, Luke is trying to say that he is the son of David or a descendant of David, this great king. That not only does he come from this great line, but he also fulfills the prophecies, the promises God made to David that he would have a great king who would rule forever. Jesus is this king. Okay? Not only that, he's the son of Abraham. Like all Jewish people who called themselves son of Abraham, Jesus is also a son of Abraham. It means he's Jewish. All right? Jesus is fully Jewish, but also there's something important here that by doing this, he can actually represent God's people. As the king from the son of David, he also represents the people of Israel as the first or as the fully faithful person who actually follows the law, who keeps the law, who is completely righteous and who follows God. Okay? So all of this is, all of God's people like, um, has been narrowed down to Jesus. He is the faithful one who actually keeps the law, who fulfill God's righteousness and reconcile people to him. Okay, the next one, he is the son of Adam. Now this is where it actually starts to expand again. Adam was created, the, like everybody in a sense is related to Adam. He represents all of humanity here, not just like broader than the Jewish people. Jesus is the son of Adam. But this is where it gets the best part. This is actually, Adam is the son of God. This is where everything, the whole genealogy, all 50 some names, all chunk block of names of son of, son of, son of, all comes down to Son of God. This is the part that Luke really wants us to see. <clears throat> if you didn't hear God when he opened the heavens and said, you are my son, whom I love, and you I'm so pleased. If you didn't get the part there that he is God's son, Luke wants you to catch it here. Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, so, the question I was getting at here earlier today is, what do we do with this, Right? We have this part where Jesus is king. He quotes, uh, God quotes Psalm 2. He is the king from the house of David. And God has just coronated. He says, you are, or crowned him. You are my son whom I love. Today I've become your father. Okay? It also says that Jesus is Lord. Now this is something that we bring from other stories here today. We realize that Jesus is Lord. We also get this too from the, what God spoke over Jesus, that he is the servant. Not a servant. We are all servants of God. But the servant. Referring back to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who spoke of a servant who would come and who would faithfully bring about salvation for God's people. Jesus is this servant who is prophesied about. And this is one <clears throat> that I think a lot of us bring into um, our understanding of Jesus, that he's a savior. Now, this is absolutely true, but I don't think it's Luke's point this morning. Now, by savior, I mean sometimes... Like, this is amazing. And when you really start to dig into it, Jesus, who has saved me from my sin so that I can be reconciled to God and go to heaven, that is profound. That is life-changing. But the trouble is, sometimes we can narrow the gospel down to just that sliver of who Jesus is. And if that's all you realize, if that's all you think about Jesus, that's still enough. Like, that's still amazing. But what I want to show us this morning both those of you who have maybe heard this story for the first time or for those of you who've heard it dozens upon dozens of times is that Luke is making a different point here. He's helping us see that Jesus is not only just the Savior, the King, the servant of God, he's also the Son of God. That's the central part that he wants us to see. And I was thinking about it some this week, like what does this matter? 
You know, why is Son of God so central to what Luke is trying to help us see? These first three chapters, it keeps coming up again and again and again. Jesus is the Son of God. Because I think it broadens our faith. I was thinking about it for myself this last week. What does it mean to me? And why do I get so excited when I hear the fact that Jesus is God's king, when he is the servant, that he is the son of God? Why is this so important for me? Because when I, when I only think of Jesus as savior, if I'm not careful, I can dip into the idea that the only thing that Jesus matters for is my sake. Is that He's Savior, and that's important for me because I want to live forever. I want to go to heaven when I die. Now, that's really crass, and that's really, um, that's a really like an oversimplification. But we have to be careful. We have to protect ourselves from it because then pretty soon the gospel becomes just sin management for us. What can I do or what do I need to do to make sure I go to heaven? What do I need to do to make sure I get in? And we go through life living that way. When you read the Gospels, God means so much more for us. Not just about how do you avoid the, the bad stuff so that when you die you get a benefit, but actually how do we live a new life now? How do we follow Jesus as Lord? What does it mean for us that he is the servant who comes not with power but with faithfulness and that he is God's king, not the king who uses armies but the king who uses faithfulness to lead his people? This is why it's so important for us. For those of you who may be hearing this story for the first time today, I'm sorry if it feels like you're getting the fire hydrant version. <laughs> for those of you who have heard this story numerous times, I hope you're seeing that there is so much more here. That there's more than just Jesus being baptized and God saying how much he loves him. There's actually symbols here. There's depth. There's amazing depth that I feel like I'm just skimming over to help us see who Jesus is. And the more we see this, the more it affects our whole lives. The Christianity, it's not just a religion that we follow for someday when we die. It's actually a religion that we follow, a person, a king that we are devoted to right now that changes the way we live. It's not necessarily easy. Trust me, I know. But it is good. This is what I think Luke wants us to see. This is the good news this morning. Amen.